I don't know about you, my friend, but as for me, I make so many blunders and so many mistakes that sometimes I've wondered whether I'd ever be any good for anything. I've heard of one man that used to keep a manila folder with letters at the top, F-T-I-H-D. These letters stood for the words, Foolish things I have done. And he used to keep a record of them in that manila folder. Well, many times I've thought I'd need more than a folder, more than a cabinet, a whole library of cabinets. It's no wonder that it's often been said we need two lives, one to learn how to live and then the other to live. But today I would like to try and encourage you, as I need encouragement for myself, that God is sufficient to cover all our follies and all our weaknesses and to make our lives significant, fruitful and glorious. Think on some of the promises of Scripture. God says that he can thresh a mountain with a worm. Ever thought about that? Don't worry about making mistakes. The only thing that can't fall any lower is a worm. And God says he can thresh a mountain with a worm. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. That's what we read in Zechariah, the fourth chapter, in the sixth verse. That it doesn't depend on our might, but depends on God. Our Lord said, without me you can do nothing. But the same Lord promised that he would give us power to be more than conquerors through him. I want to introduce you today to God's tool chest. It's found in 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, and beginning at verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now please notice the strange things in God's collection. This is his tool chest. Here are the people he uses. What is foolish, what is weak, what is low, what is despised, even what is not. That's a strange tool, something that is not. He gives the reason so that no human being might boast. Ah, there's a reason why God can't depend upon us as we are. There's a reason that explains why God hides pride from man. We would give ourselves up to boasting if we were successful and capable at everything. God chooses people who are messes, failures, and makes them his servants, if they'll let him. There's a whole book in the Bible that illustrates this theme, that God uses the lowly, the foolish, the weak, 
the despised. Someday read the book of Judges through. It's a terrible book in some respects, for it speaks of a world where God was not known to the majority. It says there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Ah, that would be a terrible way to live. But that book of Judges, my friend, that tells us about God's tool chest. The word judges really means saviors or deliverers. That's what the old judges were. They were conquering kings, but without a crown. Every one of the judges that were used to deliver Israel glorified God by their meanness or inadequacy, by their obscurity or their poverty or their foolishness or their weakness. Read it through and see. There was Othniel, the younger brother. There was Ehud, the left-handed judge. There was Shamgar, who slew hundreds of the enemies with an ox goad. There was Deborah, the woman leader, who put Barak, the man, to shame. There was Jephthah, the harlot's son. And then there was the smallest man in the world. Have you ever heard about him? The smallest man in the world? If God could use the smallest man in the world, surely he can use us. I'm reading from the book of Judges in the sixth chapter. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak at Ophrah. This is Judges 6, verse 11. As Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valour. Gideon said, Pray, sir, if the Lord is with us, why has all this befallen us? And where are all his wonderful deeds our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? The Lord has cast us off and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? But Gideon said to him, Pray, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord said to him, But I'll be with you, and you shall smite the Midianites as one man. Well, Gideon seems quite a character. He's not afraid to talk back to God, and he's very frank. And yet he was the smallest man in the world. Did you notice he said, My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. We're told in the book of Deuteronomy that the Israelites were the smallest nation on earth. And that's why God chose them. Manasseh was a divided tribe, half on one side of Jordan and half on the other. So that was the smallest tribe in Israel. Gideon says that his father's family is the weakest family in this weakest tribe of this smallest nation of Israel. And then he says, and I'm the least in my family. He was the youngest son of the poorest family, of the smallest tribe, of the smallest people on earth. So you see, he was indeed, in a sense, the smallest man in the world. But God chose to use him. God said, but I'll be with you. Ah, there's the point. It's not what we are in ourselves. It's what we can be with God. That's what Christ meant when he said, without me, separated from me, you can do nothing. Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. 
all things that are good, all things that are wise, all things in the will of God. In the seventh chapter, we're told what happened next. Gideon has blown the trumpet and gathered as many people as he can get because the enemy, the Midianites, they're like locusts for multitude. Myriads of them spread out over the valleys. So Gideon's gathered as many men as he can get, but they're not many. I'm reading from chapter 7 and verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, My own hand has delivered me. Therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever's fearful and trembling, let him return home. So Gideon tested them. Twenty-two thousand returned and ten thousand remained. Now, my friend, can you picture what happened? Here's Gideon looking at his very tiny army, very small compared with the enemy, and the Lord comes along and says, Gideon, you've got too many people. And Gideon says, What, Lord? What did you say? The Lord says, Gideon, you've got too many. So test them. And two-thirds failed the test. Now notice what the Lord says to Gideon. He says, Gideon, there's something still too wrong with your people. Gideon says, I know, they're too few. The Lord says, no, there's still too many. Verse 4. Take them down to the water, and I'll test them for you there. And he of whom I say to you, this man shall go with you, shall go with you. And any of whom I say to you, this man shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone that laps the water with his tongue, like a dog laps, set him by himself. Likewise, everyone that kneels down to drink, set him by himself. Now the number of those that lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was three hundred men. All the rest of the people, that's all the rest of the ten thousand, knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men that lapped, I'll deliver you. I'll give the Midianites into your hand. Let all the others go every man to his home. Well, you can imagine how Gideon felt about this. A tiny army to start with, and now it's decimated by the Lord. No wonder he was afraid. What does God do next? God does some surprising things. Verse 9 tells us, Judges chapter 7, verse 9. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp. I've given it into your hand. But if you're afraid to go down, go down anyway with Pura your servant, and you'll hear what they say, and afterwards your hands will be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura his servant to the outposts of the armed men that were in the camp, and the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts for multitude. Their camels were without number, as the sand which is upon the seashore for multitude. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and lo, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian, and came to the tent, and struck it so that it fell, and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand God has given Midian and all the host. When Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped 
and he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. What a fascinating story. Can you imagine that night how carefully, how fearfully Gideon and his servants steal out into the darkness over to where the enemy tents are? On their tummies they get through the the sentry posts, crawling on and on until Gideon feels that he should stop. And just where he stops, at that one tent, out of perhaps 50,000 tents, he hears men talking. And one of them's telling a dream. And the dream promises that Gideon will indeed be the deliverer. What a wonderful providence, my friends. As I pick up my Bible to read it again, I marvel how God can have control over chaos. Here's an Arab who dreams, and he dreams what God wants him to dream. Exactly what God wants him to dream. Do you see the omnipotence of God in the world of mind as well as in that of matter? He can rule mind, and he can rule it even when it's asleep. Notice how in the providence of God, this man is even moved to tell his dream. Now, it's not everybody that hurries up to tell his dream just after he's dreamt it at night. We usually wait till the morning. And notice that Gideon is present just at the right time, just at the right place. And he gets the right message. Now, I guess there were a million things this man could have dreamed about, but he dreamt about a barley biscuit. Now, may I remind you that barley was a thing despised. People didn't eat barley unless they were very poor or unless there was a famine. Barley was for dogs and for cattle. And this barley biscuit, which is called a cake of barley bread, don't think of it as being like one of our raised loaves. Oh, no. This was more like the thin biscuit the Jews would use at Passover time. And in the dream, this biscuit is seen thin and attenuated, but like a sword, moving onwards through the air, then down along the ground, rolling and waving, until it comes to the chief tent, the pavilion of the Prince of Midian, and it smites the upright post, and the tent collapses. And as it collapses, the other tents collapse. God could even tell the listener to the dream what it meant. This is the sword of Gideon, the soldier exclaims, who's told the dream. Who told him that? Please observe that God can work by any means. God is never short of instruments. He has his servants everywhere. He can work by the feeblest means or the strongest. He can take a biscuit that a child could crumble to smite Midian. You know, a tallow candle fired from a rifle can go through a door. But the penetrating power is not in the candle, but in what impels it. And my friend, you and I are no stronger than a tallow candle. We're not worth any more than a barley biscuit. But God can use it. Otherwise, we would take the glory if it came from our strength and our wisdom, 
Michelangelo once was painting, doing a beautiful job as usual, when a friend came along and said, Michelangelo, that must be a wonderful brush that you have. The Michelangelo laid it down and took another and worked just as wonderfully. You and I can be God's brushes if we surrender to his hand. However weak we are, my friends, God can use us. And for good, God can work by the feeblest, by barley cakes. He uses unexpected means. He uses despised means. But they're efficient means. It really worked, my friends. Let's see what happened next. I open the scriptures again. And I read now from verse 19 onwards. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. You see, they'd broken up into three companies. And they had trumpets in their hands and they had empty jars with torches inside them. So here were three companies of a hundred each. Verse 19 tells us what happened with Gideon and his company. They blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. And the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars, holding in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. They stood every man in his place round about the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the three hundred trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow and against all the army, and the army fled. Well, what a way of winning a battle. The 300 men of Gideon surround the camp. And then at the right signal, they burst the earthenware pots. And the torches shine out into the darkness. And the Midianites, in their fear, in their panic, think that behind every torch, there's a vast company of men. And so they fight each other in the dark. And then they flee. And Gideon is indeed the victor. What a story. It has so much to tell us. You notice with these men, every one of them had both his hands full. You'd think he would be unable to strike a blow. Indeed, none of them did strike a blow. Without a stroke of a weapon, the victory was won. The battle was the Lord's. Christians have no weapons to wield but the sounding out from them as from a trumpet, the word of the Lord. And the light of a Christian life shining through earthen vessels. Our weapons are not carnal but mighty to God to the pulling down of strongholds. We're all like David fighting Goliath. This world's too much for us. If our imaginations were better, we'd almost die from fear. This world's a dangerous place. It's an evil place. It's a world of tremendous problems. And God sends us out as believers without weapons. Well, that's not quite true. He sends us out without worldly weapons. We have the trumpet of the word of God. And that's sufficient to meet the lies of the enemy. We have the shield of faith. And according to scripture, that can turn aside every dart of the enemy. And God will use the light of the Christian life 
from our earthen vessels to win others for the right side in the battle down here. Notice they had to break those earthen vessels. Perhaps that's what Jesus meant when he said, if any man would come after me, let him take up his cross. Now, the cross, my friends, doesn't mean putting up with your rheumatism or some troublesome in-law. The cross is where our will conflicts with God's by nature, and we choose the will of God, however crucifying to our nature. That's the cross. And there'll be no light from our lives until that cross is embraced, and embraced daily. For Christ said, if any man would follow me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. Wherever the will of God clashes with ours, we are to choose his. In all things, my friends. In all things. But when we do, there'll be such a light that multitudes will see it. They'll come to the light. And then they'll listen to the trumpet of the word of the Lord. And there'll be a great victory. So you notice there are some conditions. Christians only seem a small army in this world. Indeed, they'll be as scarce as gypsies after 2000 AD, unless there's a great revival. There are 10% less professing Christians in the world every 40 years. We'll die out unless something happens, but something is going to happen. Scripture says this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world unto all nations. Good News Unlimited, my friend, is but one of God's agencies to fulfill that promise and that prophecy. You can have a hand in it too. For the gospel does not preach itself. It requires your help, your prayers, your gifts, your witness. There are conditions for this tiny army of gods. Do you remember how God tested these people? He brought them down to the water. And there were two ways of drinking. We read that one company just lapped like dogs. Oh, you say, God won't want those. My friend, that's exactly who he chose. You see, the others, they went right down on their knees and they glued their lips to the stream and they swilled till they were full. These were the more indulgent soldiers. These were less engrossed with their real task. They were less patient of fatigue and thirst. But the 300, they hardly stopped to sweep up the water in their curved palms, to moisten their lips. They didn't even want to break rank. They had their eyes on the enemy. That was the test. And it was an unconscious test. You remember there'd been a conscious test before that, when Gideon had said, there's going to be a terrible war. If you're afraid, go home. That was a conscious test. But this one was an unconscious test. Now, my friend... God shuts out no man from his army. But men shut themselves out unconsciously because they will not discipline themselves for the warfare. They choose self-indulgent habits that proclaim their unfitness. If we're Christians, we should dedicate body, mind and soul to God. To be a Christian is to be a disciplined person, not in order to gain salvation, but as a fruitage of salvation. You can't live as a venture if you're a Christian. 
The law of God is to be applied to all things, eating and drinking and dressing and spending and sexing, all things. What would God have me to do? That's the question that the Christian asks. If we are self-indulgent and weaken ourselves by folly, God cannot use us. On the other hand, he does not choose that we should be ascetics. Jesus was no ascetic. We are to use the world, but we're not to abuse it. We can either drink for strength or for drunkenness. We can eat for strength or for gluttony. Life is to some men, first of all, a place for strenuous endeavour. Only secondly, a place of refreshment. Those men are Christians. They think of duty first and of water afterwards. Particularly for young people, is self-restraint necessary? For them, life is opening as if it were a garden of delight. Their passions are strong, their senses are keen, but their experience is slender. To all such, earth's joys appeal more strongly than they do to those who have drunk of the cup and who know how bitter is the sediment. Never was Gideon's test more needed for the army of the Lord of hosts than it is today. May I draw one more lesson from our story? It may be, dear friend, that you are feeling in your heart the great power of sin. Perhaps the Midianites are encamped in your soul. Maybe there are countless evils in that heart of yours, and these, like the locusts, seem to be eating up everything in your family. Maybe comfort and strength and joy is ceasing from your experience. You sigh because of these invaders. My friend, try what faith can do. Even if your own earnest efforts appear to make you worse, try faith. Neither tears, nor prayers, nor vows, nor self-denials on their own can get rid of the foe. Try the barley cake of faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In him you are saved, if you believe. You are saved already. Pour the sponding air of heaven. Try faith. The barley cake of faith will smite the power of sin, break the dominion of doubt, and bring you victory. So long as you believe the promises of God, all things indeed are yours. Faith will fill the valleys and level the mountains and for you today. God bless you, my